0: Well, what must you do to make God accept you? In his series of Discipleship Explore talks, Barry Cooper mentioned a recent survey that asked 7,000 churchgoers whether they agreed with this statement. The way to be accepted by God is to try sincerely to live a good life. Now, more than 60% of people agreed with that statement. In other words, many Christians think they can be good enough for God by doing good things or by avoiding bad things. It's no different from the numerous people who see themselves as very moral but wouldn't call themselves religious. The tragic reality is this is not Jesus' good news. In fact, to agree with the idea that God accepts us if we try sincerely to live a good life actually mocks Jesus' teaching. It mocks his mission, it mocks his sacrifice, because it's saying, fundamentally, he is wrong. Now, this is nothing new. If that survey had been carried out in Jerusalem around 49 AD, there were plenty of people who would have agreed to that statement. A significant group of Jewish believers were hooked on the idea that to be saved by God, you've got to earn it by doing something. In this case, it was the cherished rite of circumcision, which was originally commanded by God to Abraham in Genesis 17, and then given to Moses for all generations of Hebrews as an outward sign of their loyalty to God, of their belief in his promises to them. And the storm center is summed up nicely in Acts 15, verse 1. Have a look at that verse again with me certain people came down from judea to antioch and were teaching the believers unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by moses you cannot be saved well from the perspective of these judaizers as they were nicknamed jesus was the jewish messiah and if you wanted to follow this jewish messiah and Messiah is the Hebrew word for king, it's where we get the Greek word Christos, Christ, which means king. If you wanted to follow this Jewish Messiah, you had to become a Jew. Perhaps on the surface they felt a little threatened that maybe their Jewish identity would be diluted by this influx of uncircumcised Gentiles. But on a deeper level, what they were doing was elevating the law of Moses above Jesus. As the Bible commentator Don Carson explains, for them, the Jews, Jesus could be accepted as the Messiah only if the result was a group of people even more devoutly committed to the Mosaic law. That is the law given to Moses at Sinai, the food laws, circumcision, temple festivals and worship. So in effect, these Jewish teachers were saying Jesus is not enough for salvation. You need Moses and his law too. Now, my wife is very good at making uh, banana bread, and her recipe only needs three bananas, but I typically nudge her and ask her to add another one just to really make it even better. No. To add more is to ruin the recipe. And that's gospel arithmetic too. The gospel of Jesus plus my works equals destruction. The gospel of Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. You see Paul and Barnabas had no time for this new false teaching and they tackled it head on in verse 2. A sharp dispute we're told and disagreement fired up which could not be avoided or ignored. Paul gives the background to this dispute in his letter to the Galatian church. You can read about it in chapter 2 verses 11 to 21. He was very disturbed and crossed by this false teaching that led even the Apostle Peter and his close colleague Barnabas to cut ties with the Gentile Christians. Peter was so fearful of this Jerusalem circumcision group that he even broke friendship with Gentile Christians by stopping eating with them. Now, I appreciate we might feel uncomfortable at the idea of Christians locking horns in strong disagreement and conflict. Surely it's not such a big deal. Can't we just get along and uh, have some unity? Now, there are some issues that are so central to the gospel and Jesus's mission that if they are left unchallenged, it will destroy his church. Any error that undermines the good news that Jesus Christ is our only saviour needs to be dealt with as quickly and carefully as a ticking bomb left on a bus. Thankfully this conflict is the result of the problem of growth rather than having to deal with the discouragement of decline. Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were based was quickly becoming the headquarters of the mission to the gentiles As Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, his gospel was spreading beyond Israel to all the nations. But the result of a high-level crisis is it needs an equally high-level authoritative solution. So Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem to present their case to the apostles and the elders of the mother church. And never wasting an opportunity on the journey, we're told in verse 3, that they strengthen and build up the Christians they meet along the way. Now, just as a note of quick application, how do you react when conflict comes? Do you want to avoid it? Do you want to cover it up? Are you actually rolling up your sleeves because you enjoy a bust-up? Well, be encouraged by the openness demonstrated here in Acts 15. Surely this is a model. For God's church today. There's no cover-up, is there? It isn't a case of just strong personalities seeking attention and putting their point of view across. It's over a central issue and there's no shame in bringing it to other Christian leaders for their wisdom, their discernment and direction. Yes, there's a need for sensitivity. It's interesting that Luke doesn't give us all the gory details He doesn't go over old ground, which Paul has already covered openly in his letter to Galatians about the upfront rebuke he had to give Peter. And there's a need for humility. There's a need for openness and honesty, all of which can only be fueled genuinely by the grace of the gospel. So pray, please, that Redeemer Church and our partner churches here in Manchester our partner churches in the US, our partner churches in uh, South Korea, throughout the world, the network of Acts 29, planting churches across the world, which we support. Pray that these churches would continue to be mature places where good disagreement and conflict can be resolved biblically, can be resolved truthfully and graciously. So as we look now at what happens at the council meeting, I've just got one heading to sum this up, which I hope helps capture the thoughts. The gift of a clear decision. It's a marvellous thing, isn't it? The gift of a clear decision, salvation in Jesus Christ alone. I think it's fair to say that reading the minutes of committee meetings isn't a task that the vast majority of people look forward to, and I'm thankful that Luke has done a terrific job of giving us the extended highlights of what was a significant and lengthy meeting. Here are some observations about the tone and content of the meeting which I think we would do well to learn from. Firstly, and quite simply, it was welcoming. Verse 4. Respect, Welcome, hospitality, it goes a long way, doesn't it, to disarm confrontation. Secondly, it was representative. Verses five to 13 show us that. Not only are the main leadership council there, that's the apostles, those of the 12 who followed Jesus most closely and were, were appointed by him, as well as the chief elders, so those whom the apostles appointed later to be in leadership positions, But there's also the party of the Pharisees who represented the circumcision group. And they actually start the debate in verse 5, alongside Barnabas and Paul, who give their evidence in verse 12. And then when the decision is reached, the whole church is represented in some way. And the whole church, together with this council, are in agreement in verse 22 thirdly they invested time didn't they and careful thought we're told and biblical study in verses six to seven so this crucial theological issue wasn't decided on the spot it wasn't a brief corridor conversation looking for a quick win just get it done and ticked off the to-do list nor was it decided by a new revelation or a prophetic utterance or a vision from the lord which would be too dependent on experience or just tied to one or two apostles. No, this meeting was setting an example and precedent for the church as a whole. This is how church sorts out difficult issues. Therefore, discernment involved in an orderly meeting, evaluating experience, listening to the reasons, subjecting everything to the authorities of the scriptures, because this is not about personal preference but God's mission, doing God's will for his glory. And Peter's speech in verse seven is crucial. He goes back to his experience with Cornelius, which we read about in Acts 10 and 11. And probably that took place about 10 years before the council meeting. He highlights in verse nine, doesn't he? Their hearts are purified by God. It's God's work. If the Gentiles have trusted Jesus, he has forgiven and cleansed their sin if god has accepted them shown by him giving his holy spirit to them how can we jews then put a burden on them that even we weren't able to obey peter's conclusion in verse 11 is a terrific gospel summary there's only one way for people from all nations to be saved what does he say verse 11 but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. What a fantastic note for Peter's final speech and appearance in Acts to finish on. Salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. Interestingly, James says the words of the prophets, as he, the chief elder in Jerusalem, stands up to give the scriptural backing to Peter and Paul and Barnabas's work he notices that the word there that prophets plural shows that um, he's actually saying there's loads more Old Testament he could use to defend the Gentile inclusion by faith alone. Could have gone to Genesis 12, Isaiah 25, Isaiah 45, could have looked at the book of Ruth or Jonah or Daniel 4 and plenty more. But the passage in Amos 9 In verses 11 to 12, both in the Hebrew text and the Greek translation used by Luke here, clearly states that Gentiles were called by God to bear his name. Now, to bear God's name meant to belong to him, to be in a saving relationship with him. The promise that King David's broken throne would be restored is fulfilled by Jesus and his kingdom being open to all people. The decision is final. The decision is clear. God's word has been studied. Life-changing testimonies have been heard and celebrated. Serious objections and doubts have been raised and debated. After much prayer, consideration, and the Holy Spirit's direction, we're told that in verse 28, we have the gift of clarity, a firm biblical decision. How are people from any nation saved? By grace, through Jesus Christ alone. No law, no good works. No add-ons, no updates, no version 5.0. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And as James concludes, verse 19, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, it's the moment, surely, where you'd cheer, you'd clap, you'd hug each other. Um, obviously not now with the social distancing, but maybe even pop the cork on a bottle of non-alcoholic wine, whatever. Hooray, the job is done. Let's get on with the mission. Uh, Not quite. Uh, Sorry, um, just sit down. We have an important requirement. Look at verses 20 and 21. Let's read those. Instead, we should write to them, James says, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every sabbath and again um, in the letter verse 28 it seemed good to the holy spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols from blood from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality you will do well to avoid these things wait a sec hold the phone what on earth is going on haven't you just replaced one law with another well we'll look at the meaning and the application of this particular issue in part two next is a, a testimony i want you to watch from a jewish woman on the youtube channel one for israel And she's describing her experience of coming to faith in Christ. And as Gentiles, we owe so much to the Jewish people. And in the context of Acts 15, I think it's an encouragement for us to hear the testimony of those brought up knowing and observing the Old Testament and then discovering the Messiah. I hope you enjoy this.
1: When I was a little girl... We joined the Orthodox synagogue. We always sat in the back because my parents were lower middle class and so they could only afford what they could afford and it seemed as though it was a three-ring circus. There was a lot of activity going on that wasn't even somber. I uh, remember feeling a void in my heart looking at my father through uh, welled the eyes of tears, and I even sensed it even back then. God was speaking to my heart back then, and I couldn't express it. Um, my mom was up there, my dad was there, but whatever comfort they gave me, it wasn't gonna feel whatever it was in my heart. I was probably one of the only Jewish children in my grade school, bringing my sandwiches on Passover, matzah with peanut butter and jelly. On the Monday, everybody was friendly to me. On the Tuesday, everybody was friendly to me. But by Wednesday, I was called a Christ killer. Christ killer, I didn't kill anybody who was Christ. And kids were taunting me and making fun of me. Anti-Semitism is rampant, and it begins very young. I was in sales. I was selling copiers. And I walked into an office of five men. They were all kind to me. They listened to what I had to say. Let's go to lunch. My cousins have a delicatessen around the corner. Uh, Delicatessen, what religion are you? I said, well, I'm Jewish. And he said, well, so's Larry, the owner of the firm. And over lunch, he said, yeah, I'm a Messianic Jew. And I said, Messianic Jew, what's that? Larry was sharing with me about Jesus from my holy scriptures and he shared a Bible verse with me. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way but the Lord has taken the iniquity of us all on him. Bing! I got it. There's always been something curious in my heart about Jesus. I was taught that he was Jewish that he was a good man maybe a prophet but that i am jewish and i am not to believe my father was orthodox i come from a line of rabbis on that side of the family the shema here o israel the lord our god the lord is one was our prayer every week. And so I said to Larry, well, what do I tell my father? They shared with me a psalm, Psalm 22, where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can count on my bones, my tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. At that moment, I knew. That's, that's Jesus in my Holy Scriptures. My past teaching about Judaism came into full light. It was as though I understood And that it was okay for me to be Jewish and believe in Jesus. I know that I am the author of all the wrongs. We are people that need help. Yeshua is salvation, help save me. And I keep coming back to Isaiah 53 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way. And yet the Lord laid his life down as God's servant, as a suffering servant. And that was one of the biggest keys that I as a Jew needed to really solidify within my own heart. He was on the cross. He died in my place so that I could live the exchanged life and eternal life and that nailed it for me. All of the past history, all of my past hurt, all of my past basic knowledge, it all came together and my life did a 180. God came into my heart as a personal realization. Here I was looking for answers outside of me, but only God's Word inside of me has changed me. God did for me what I could never do for myself. You know, it says once we're born through the birth canal, but we're born again spiritually, and that's what happened to me in my cousin's delicatessen. Jesus made me kosher, literally. I was changed. At that moment in that deli, the lights went off. I feel so positive about Jesus, Yeshua, that He has been on the throne of my heart. He has been my Lord and Savior for these years. When I know that eternal life is mine, not because of any of my own merit, because of my Messiah living in me, it has made all the difference in my life. And I excitedly say, the best is yet to come.
0: I wonder what struck you from that woman's testimony? Was it how foundational Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 were to her discovery? Was it the delight she had as she spoke about Yeshua, her savior, who is always with her? Hearing testimonies like these help us to have the heart to listen the right way to what comes next in Acts 15 uh, and Acts 16 as we look at the implications of this letter. And I've just headed this section, the power of freedom and service for the gospel. And at first sight, if we're honest, the requirement of the council there in the letter in verses 28 to 29 is odd, isn't it? But actually, in fact, it is very wise and very loving. Firstly, towards Jewish Christians who would be offended by the Gentiles' gospel freedom and how they might use it. Secondly, to Jewish non-believers who might be put off the gospel because of what they see as Gentile behavior, which dishonors the scriptures. The Gentiles had to remember and respect that the Jewish Christians had been brought up with the Old Testament laws and certain scruples over food. Notice that the Jerusalem council didn't come up with a long list of forbidden foods, including pigs, camels, eels, crabs, bats, rats, geckos, all of which are listed in Leviticus 11. It's only the items that seem involved with activities around pagan idolatry and preparing meat. So in the ancient world, pagan worship involved animal sacrifice. Sometimes animals were burned whole on an altar, while in other rites, such as the ancient Greeks' Dionysian Mysteries, the animals were torn apart and eaten raw in some way connecting the worshipper to their life breath, to their power. And in the Roman era, the meat not used in sacrifice was cooked and eaten in the temple premises in shared dining rooms, much like our food courts or Wagamamas, but obviously without the sacrifices. And if it wasn't used in the temple, the meat was sold in the markets. In this practice, then, the Jerusalem Council want the Christians to be distinctive and they want them to serve their jewish believing brothers and sisters so in corinth where paul was deeply involved with the church the question of food sacrificed to idols was an ongoing issue you can read about it in 1 corinthians 8. there was a disagreement about whether particular food had been sacrificed to idols or not paul's answer seems very much in line with the Jerusalem Council. If someone thinks food has been sacrificed to an idol, take the view it has. The brother who has the issue wins. Serve them by not eating the meat. When it comes to sexual immorality, which was a broad term for any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman, the Jerusalem church and the leaders were united in reinforcing the freedom of the gospel does not give freedom for sexual indulgence paul is very clear with the corinthian church again back in 1 corinthians chapter 5 this is not up for negotiation there's no freedom of conscience when it comes to sexual immorality the bible teacher chris green helpfully points out that all of this is an outworking of jesus's teaching In Mark chapter 7, and particularly those verses of the discussion in 14 to 23, Chris Green states, There Jesus denied that food has the power to make anyone spiritually unclean. He explains, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile him? That's Jesus speaking. For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. But as Chris Green carries on, with the next breath, Jesus warns about a range of behaviours, including sexual immorality, which do make people unclean. Jesus said in Mark 7 verses 20 to 23, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So are Christians being inconsistent? Do we hold loose to food laws but still obsess over sex regulations? Are we just picking and choosing whatever suits our own preferences and prejudices? They're good questions and often raised by friends, especially who have issues with Christianity's sexual ethics. The crucial lesson is that Jesus has teased apart the things that are a sign that our hearts are unclean. He has teased apart the things that are a sign that our hearts are unclean. All foods are clean. And therefore we have freedom to enjoy them, but not at the expense of brothers or sisters or non-believers who have an issue with them. The Gentile and Jewish Christian can therefore have a meal together in their homes without worrying about what has been served. And you can see how there, after the council meeting, as Jews and Gentiles met in Antioch, their fellowship has been restored. Today, when I'm with my Muslim friends, I do not need to be anxious about hospitality. Eating halal food does not affect the gospel. Greed, on the other hand, is a gospel issue. And if I'm overeating or overdrinking with a halal, kosher or western, that shows food rather than Christ is my Lord. Then there is something that needs repenting of. There is a change that needs to take place both with the Holy Spirit's power and my obedience. Sexual purity and obedience to Jesus in this area of life is another distinctive sign that our hearts belong to him So yes, if we are accused of being inconsistent We have to take people back to the applications Jesus the teacher The prophet greater than Moses has given us After all Jesus is the Savior who can solve our deepest problem, which is our heart He alone is the Savior who makes our heart pure. What's fascinating is the response of the Gentile Christians in Antioch when they received this letter. Look at verse 31 of chapter 15. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. The church was strengthened. They didn't see these requirements as impeding their freedom. There were no letters of complaint fired off, just a godly, gracious, and glad response. But then look at what paul does in chapter 16 verses 1 to 5. now i'm sorry i've deliberately missed out the parting of company between paul and barnabas which is uh, another sermon for another time and whilst sad has a very positive effect of sending two mission teams out and eventually they are all reconciled you can read that in colossians 4 verse 10. but back to verses 1 to 5 of chapter 16 paul gets timothy circumcised in verse 3. wait a second Oh, hold the scalpel a moment, Paul. What is going on? You, you've just fought a fight both in Antioch and Jerusalem so that Gentile Christians do not have to be circumcised so that it's crystal clear to everyone that people are saved by grace alone. In your letter to the Galatian church, you explicitly mention Titus, who was a colleague, who was Greek, wasn't circumcised, But now tim is getting the chop are you feeling a bit confused now luke makes this seem so obvious after the council it cannot be a mistake or a u-turn on paul's part it has to be an application of the gospel principles again as chris green memorably puts it it's about freedom and flexibility freedom if the gentiles have freedom not to get circumcised then they also have freedom to voluntarily get circumcised. If not, then their freedom not to be circumcised just becomes a new law, doesn't it? I'm a Gentile Christian and I will not be circumcised. Timothy was willing to get circumcised, but why? And this is where the flexibility for the gospel comes in. In verse 1 of chapter 16, we're told that Tim's mum is Jewish and a Christian, but his father was a Greek. As a Greek, Timothy circumcision is not an issue for him but on his mother's side even though he had Jewish heritage his uncircumcision meant that he would not be accepted as a teacher in a synagogue and therefore could not take the evangelistic opportunities that Paul was planning for them and had chosen for him to do as they go on their next mission journey. In chapter 16 verse 3 we're told explicitly this action was taken because of the Jews in those places. Now, that word, Jews, is used over 85 times in Acts, and almost without exception refers to unbelievers. And we can see that the Jews are here distinct from the believers mentioned in verse 2. So Timothy used his freedom to submit to circumcision in order to win a hearing with non-Christian Jews as he shared the gospel. It was not Christian pressure from within the church but a missionary strategy with a heart for those who are not yet part of God's church. Can you see what a powerful and I'm sure it was painful application this is of the gospel principles to use your freedom and flexibility to remove the barriers that make it difficult for people to hear Jesus's good news? How do you use your freedom and flexibility remove the barriers that make it difficult for people to hear jesus's good news but so what what are we expected to do with this today well may i suggest a few ways to get you thinking about the impact of this scripture for our lives firstly for christians as a church what do you do that makes it easy or perhaps more difficult for people to hear and encounter jesus's gospel i grew up in a traditional anglican church which, during my childhood and into my teenage years, uh, did put me off Christianity. But interestingly, it was the religious ceremony called confirmation that actually brought me to faith, because the vicar, who is very much a gospel preacher and evangelist, used the three months of preparation classes to fully explore the gospel and answer the tough questions and answers um, to those tough questions. Over that time, I began to realize and experience Jesus is God. He is my Savior. My life is in His hands. My confirmation at the age of 13 became my public declaration that Jesus is my Savior and my life is there to serve Him. Now, you might have noticed I've changed my shirt for this part of the talk. I hope it wasn't too much of a distraction. But as an Anglican minister, in many churches, it is expected of me to wear my clergy shirt, my dog collar, in my work and my vicar robes on Sunday for Sunday services. Some people would be very put off and offended if I didn't. They would be too preoccupied by that rather than listening to scripture, rather than engaging with the preaching and praying and worshiping. So I'll happily wear my robes and preaching scarf if that helps them engage with God's word. Interestingly, when I was at Bible College in one of the chapel services I preached, I was wearing what I thought was a lovely skateboarder-type long-sleeved t-shirt with a ninja rabbit on it. I hadn't picked it out, especially for chapel. However, my tutor and another student said they found it totally unhelpful. It was very distracting. So you can see that being casual and both being formal has its weaknesses and strengths, I'm sure. But there I learned the important lesson again of Am I using freedom and flexibility to serve people by pointing them to Christ? Or am I just thinking about what's best for me? For Redeemer, when we get back to normal and you continue to meet in the Royal Oak pub, that will be a terrific venue to help people, but it might also put other people off. Do you know why you're doing it? Why you meet in a pub? Can you humbly explain how the gospel has shaped that answer? If you can, that's terrific. Would you be prepared to give up the freedom to meet in certain venues if that helped Jesus's mission? Personally, consider how you use your gospel freedom to serve other people, both Christians and those who are not yet Christian, to encounter more of Jesus's grace and truth. What would you be prepared to go without at cost to yourself in order to help someone grow in their faith or come to faith? Ultimately, how does your life, how does your words answer the question, what must you do to make God accept you? If you are not yet a Christian, it's great that you're looking in to all this Christian stuff. It's great to have you as part of uh, the fellowship here at Redeemer. I want you to look closely at us, at your Christian friends. What do they do and say that you admire? Is it distinctive because of their faith? What do you find inconsistent about Christians? Why does it annoy you? Chat to your Christian friends about this stuff. Bring it to their attention. Be prepared to listen and engage. And finally, non-Christian friend, what are your red lines? What are the boundary markers that you will not compromise on? What convinced you to have them? How well are you keeping them? Religious people are are usually accused of being very judgmental, but I know a lot of judgmental non Christians too because they feel very strongly about their principles and they don't like hypocrisy when they see it. The news has been full of that this week, hasn't it? So, do you hold those principles lovingly? Do you hold them with forgiveness and flexibility? Or are you a strict disciplinarian with a bit of superiority? If you've never done this before, Uh, why not thoughtfully and carefully read through Jesus's ethical teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? You find it in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 to 7. You could read it in about 16 minutes and you could spend years studying it. Here are some questions. What do you like about it? What do you dislike? What challenges you? And here's one that might be uncomfortable. How do you measure up to it? Well, it would be great to chat with you further about Just that, if you want help uh, reading that together with someone, whether that's Greg or one of the team at Redeemer, uh, with myself, we'd be happy to follow up with you and look at Matthew uh, chapter 5 to 7 with you um, and have time to ask questions and look at that and discuss what Jesus's gift of life looks like, what he calls us uh, to be in enjoying his salvation. Ultimately, Why would you reject the salvation and gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ offers you? I'll close with those words that Peter says in verse 11 of chapter 15. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are.